1: feeding peanut protein to infants early and often decreased their risk of developing peanut allergy. Starting under age 11 months, eating two grams of peanut protein three times a week up to age five was protective against peanut allergy.
0: Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and Mama of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all the the noise and nonsense about feeding, leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby led weaning. Hey guys, welcome back. Talking about food allergies today, I have one of my absolute favorite guests of all time, Dr. Ron Sunog, returning to talk about something a little more specific this time. If you guys know Dr. Sunag, he's a pediatrician. He also specializes in food allergies in infants. He wrote the book called Eat the Eight. It's all about how to feed your baby the big eight allergenic foods. Those are the eight foods that account for about 90% of food allergy. Fabulous book, a wealth of information about food allergies. But today he's gonna talk specifically about what do I do if my baby has an allergic reaction? Because a lot of you guys get it by now. I got to do these allergic foods early and often. I get that. I know how to do them safely. But what if your baby does have a reaction? Dr. Sunag is going to go ahead and answer all of those questions for you. Again, his book is called Eat the Eight. You can find that at the8.com It's E-I-G-H-T. I'm also going to go ahead and link up all of the resources that he talks about in today's episode on the show notes for this particular episode. And that's at blwpodcast.com forward slash 58. So with no further ado, I want to welcome Dr. Ron Sunog, pediatrician and food allergy expert. Well, hello, Dr. Sunog, and thank you so much for being back on the podcast. You are the first repeat guest because you are the allergy guru, and I'm so excited that you are here today.
1: I'm honored. Thanks.
0: All right. So our parents know and caregivers who are listening that we've kind of gotten through, you've got to introduce the potentially allergenic foods early and often. So they understand the importance of that. But what I'd like to focus on today is talking a little bit about what should parents be prepared to do in the event that baby does have a reaction to food? Any general guidance for us there?
1: You know, first, I'll just say the chance of a reaction is low. So when introducing new foods in general, there's no reason to be anxious about that. But The chance isn't zero. Some children, some infants will react. I would have Benadryl at home available. And I would recommend that prior to introducing solids, you talk to your pediatrician about, uh, you know, specifically when to give it and what the dosage should be.
0: Okay, can we talk a little bit about Benadryl? Because parents hear about that, and people often talk about baby Benadryl. But Then when you go to the store, there's no such thing as baby Benadryl. There's children's Benadryl. The recommendation on the package is don't use for kids under two. So parents are like, I'm not going to do any of this allergen stuff because I don't even know what I would do if they had a reaction. Can you talk about children's Benadryl and its use in infants?
1: Almost every bottle of Benadryl you'll see will be the same dosage, 12.5 milligrams in five mLs, which is about a teaspoon. There is uh, one brand I found that's uh, a different concentration. I've never heard of it prior to looking it up, and I've never seen it anywhere. So the common Benadryl you'll find, specifically if it's named Benadryl or the generic diphenhydramine, it will be 12.5 milligrams in 5 mLs. Like all cold medications, they are not recommended in general in children under 6. And I would agree with that in general. When you're talking about treating colds, there's generally no use for that. And it's considered more of a contraindication in children under two. So again, it shouldn't be used routinely. Also, uh, although Benadryl can make you drowsy, it should not be used for sleep in children. So I would avoid that. And it uh, is actually interesting that in children, and young children, it often does not sedate them and in fact can make them hyper. So it's not a good idea in any event. So now when we're talking about children two and under or one and under, Again, I think it's worth having at home in case you need it. And I think for specific dosing at that age, again, talk to your pediatric provider when you go to your visit and talk about specific dosing. But I think it's a good idea to have at home, have on hand in case you need it.
0: And I also usually remind parents that the Benadryl dosing will be based on your baby's weight. So it is a good idea to know your baby's weight. And if you're not able to go to the pediatrician, it is something that they will sometimes share over the phone, okay, based on this weight. Here's the recommended dose, just in the event that there is a reaction. Absolutely. Okay, Dr. Sunha, could you share a little bit about which foods would babies be more likely to have a reaction to?
1: You can react to most anything, but there are eight foods that cause uh, the vast majority of reactions. They are known among allergists and pediatricians as the big eight, and I'll just go over them and I can give you the. Approximate percentage of the uh, amount of allergy they cause in children. Number one is peanut. About 25% of food allergy in children is to peanut, about 21% to milk, about 17% to shellfish, 13% to tree nuts, about 10% to egg, 6% to fish, 5% to wheat, almost 5% to soy. So those are the big eight. There is a ninth that's close. To the big eight. That's uh, sesame. Sesame allergy has become somewhat more prevalent in the last few years. At some point, we may be talking about a big nine, but it's still referred to as the big eight.
0: And I know that the name of your book is Eat the Eight. We also talk about the big eight plus sesame. If they really change it in sesame, become, because I know like in Canada, isn't sesame one of the big nine? They're already there. If we change it in the US, do you have to change the title of, the, of your book?
1: Yes. In my, in my book, I even suggested if sesame comes on, it goes from Eat the Eight to a Nosh the Nine.
0: Awesome. All right, you're prepared. I love it. (laughs) Would you recommend or would you give us the list of the big eight allergens? And you were saying like, in what order and peanut was first? Is that uh, ranking infants? Or did was that all children? I know sometimes the data is hard to say which one's the most common because are we talking about kids or kids under one?
1: That's all children.
0: Okay, so is it different for infants? Like for six to 12 month olds? Is milk allergy more prevalent than peanut? Or is the list pretty much in the same order?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. So I would think that it would be somewhat different for infants just based on what infants are going to eat. So for example, um, shellfish and fish allergy, I think generally comes later. If for no other reason, then children tend to eat that later. Milk is something that infants will get exposed to either through formula or certainly, you know, uh, later in the first year of life through foods like yogurt and cheese. So it'll depend partly on being exposed to the food, trying the food.
0: This episode is brought to you by Help. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit BetterHelp.com weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com weaning and get 10% off your first month. And I think what's also hard when you're trying to interpret that data is a lot of it's based on self-report. So what a parent might think an allergic reaction is versus what may have actually happened, it might be a little bit different. But regardless, we do know that the majority of food allergies come from those eight foods plus sesame. When it comes to the reactions, I was wondering if you could give us some tips for like, what are the signs that parents and caregivers should be looking out for to see, gosh, is my baby having an allergic reaction to this new food that I'm presenting to them?
1: I'm going to start by saying that a very serious or life-threatening reaction is going to be rare. So even, uh, you know, in the, in the children who, res- who have uh, reactions as infants, and, and more importantly, it's more rare during infancy than it is later in life. So your risk at that age of a serious reaction is is, is unlikely. But the uh, reactions include possibly uh, itching, rash. The rash can be hives. It can be around the mouth or elsewhere. Uh, There can be some swelling, facial swelling, vomiting, difficulty breathing, a, uh, a sort of a fussiness. And, uh, you know, as it progresses in bad cases, an infant or a child can lose consciousness, but that would be a severe case and truly rare.
0: And When you mentioned that the signs of anaphylactic reaction, as you were describing them, are rare in infancy, is it also the case, I think I remember this from a previous conversation, that not only is it less common in earlier, so it's in advantage to introduce it earlier, but that the reaction is actually less severe early on. So like a further incentive to do these foods early would be that the reaction is potentially less severe. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that is correct. So first I'll say, you know, regarding the word anaphylaxis, people do use that in different ways. Technically, anaphylaxis is simply having any two of those symptoms. So more than one symptom. So for example, if a child has rash and vomiting, that is technically anaphylaxis. But if it doesn't go any further, that is certainly not life threatening. When people hear the word anaphylaxis, they think of something much more severe. And again, it can be, but it in most cases are not. So yes, during infancy, the chance of anaphylaxis is lower and the chance of fatal anaphylaxis is lower.
0: Do some reactions go away on their own or will all require some sort of medical intervention?
1: The short answer is yes. My <laughs> guess is a lot more go away than we're aware of because, um, for example, an infant can have a reaction that consists entirely of just fussiness. So, you know, infant can try a food, can just be fussy from it, and that goes away. And you can imagine that parent is likely not going to seek medical attention or report it to anyone. But uh, yes, they can go away on their own.
0: Okay, when you mentioned some of the reactions, I know, uh, recently on Instagram, we're doing a lot of awareness about food allergies. And there was a mom who she had tried like 50 new foods with her baby. And she has an older child who'd had has a number of uh, food allergies, including most of the tree nuts, but also mustard seed, which I thought was interesting. I know that's not as common, but I certainly hear about it more frequently than I used to. But this baby on her like 56th food, the baby, so the younger sibling, had a reaction and it was to tilapia. So the mom had actually tried fish previously, which was interesting, and the baby's hands got really swollen. And the family is black and the mom was sharing pictures and she was telling, she's like, you know, you need to do a better job of showing how reactions actually look different on different skin tones and she said on oh, my baby i don't see anything on her skin but a second as the hands start swelling i noticed that because my first daughter had that with reaction i was just curious if you see that sometimes where the reaction occurs not on the first but on subsequent exposures and then second question for babies of different skin colors does the reaction look different
1: so i'll answer the second one first absolutely different skin color uh, rashes can be easier or more difficult to see. So that absolutely can be um, an issue. I'm sorry, repeat the first question again?
0: Oh, my other question was, is it usually the case in your experience, you work in this field day in and day out, that a baby is having the reaction on the first exposure, like that baby had had salmon, no problem. But then with tilapia, subsequent exposure, they had a reaction.
1: Yeah, so there's sort of two parts to that. One is having had one kind of fish does not guarantee you won't be allergic to any fish. Certain foods overlap where if you're allergic to, you know, for example, cashew, your odds of being allergic to pistachio are higher. So that's one thing. So that's it, not a particular surprise that a child had one kind of fish and then reacted to another if there's no overlap, let's say. Um, as far as a, um, having had a reaction on a first ingestion of a food, So technically, you you really shouldn't have a reaction on first exposure to anything, but that is something that gets reported, right? So, So what explains that? And the answer is unknown exposure. And what that means is what you think your infant is eating for the first time, there might have been some very small amount, let's call it even microscopic, in some other food or they were simply exposed in the environment. Most pointedly, like uh, I talk about a lot in my book, 88, exposure through the skin. So if there's food in a house, there can be residue of that food in the dust in the house, and, and the child can get, an infant can get exposed that way. So when they're then eating the food for the first time, they've actually been exposed to it before.
0: Yeah, because I know parents will say, that's not true. The first time my baby had, for example, eggs, they blew up, they had all these rashes, vomiting, etc. What Dr. Sunog is saying is that may not have essentially been the first exposure. So just be aware of that. Because I think sometimes, especially with the less commonly consumed foods, like shellfish, parents will try crab. And they're like, all right, knock that off the list. We did crab once the baby's had it, they're not allergic to it. But that might have truly been the first exposure where we wouldn't anticipate seeing the reaction. So we encourage parents to feed these foods early and often. And I was wondering, Dr. Sunog, if you could just expand on that, because when parents hear early and often, their next question is, how much over what period of time of these different allergenic foods should we be feeding?
1: That takes me back to the base study, the LEAP study, that in 2015 showed that feeding peanut protein to infants early and often decreased their risk of developing peanut allergy. So the specific data from that study showed that starting under age 11 months and then eating a peanut food, two grams of protein, peanut protein, three times a week up to age five was protective against peanut allergy. So that's very specific information. Talking about peanut again specifically, is that the exact right amount? Well, that study proved that that amount worked. Would less work? Would, you know, something less than two grams three times a week work? We don't know. And I can promise you if you need the results of a study to prove it, we will never know because no one's going to repeat that study with less peanut protein. And then as far as other foods go, There are no specific amounts that anyone can point to from a study. Studies have shown that early introduction of other foods decreases the risk of food allergy. But the how much, how often hard to say, which is why most people say early and often.
0: So it's like purposely ambiguous. It's frustrating as a parent, especially if you're like type A like me and you want to know the number of grams and how often. But I love that you're just reminding us you're not missing anything. That guidance is not out there.
1: Right. It's unknown. So my recommendation would be you you do your best with it. You try to introduce a lot of foods. You try to feed them repeatedly. You don't get the idea. You know, you mentioned earlier, you know, child eats crab. They didn't react. Cross it off the list. Number one, you can't cross it off the list and say, my child will never be allergic to crab. And number two, if your intent is to decrease the risk of developing allergy by feeding it early, it's not a one-and-done thing.
0: Yeah, don't forget the often part of early and often. So you mentioned the LEAP study, so that's learning early about peanut allergy. And from that study, we've kind of had a shift in what we now know constitutes high risk for peanut allergy. So would you mind sharing what is it that makes a baby at high risk for peanut allergy based on that and other recent
1: research? When you're studying anything, you need a population that's selective enough that you're going to see results without having to test thousands or tens of thousands of people. So the LEAP study wanted to find a population of infants where they knew that their risk of developing peanut allergy was relatively high so that if kids got peanut early during infancy, early and often, and they didn't develop peanut allergy, somebody couldn't say, well, the odds were so low anyway. So they took kids who had either egg allergy or severe eczema because those uh, infants with those conditions are at significant risk of developing peanut allergy. And we know that if they don't eat peanut early, that something like 20% will develop peanut allergy. And then they took those kids and fed them peanut and 80% fewer had peanut allergy when they ate peanut as infants and again, early and often. Important point on that in terms of high risk, only about 3% of all kids are going to have either severe eczema or egg allergy or both.
0: And the key word there, in case you guys missed it, was severe. I know everybody's baby has eczema. Parents hear eczema, they stop listening to everything else. They're like, yep, that's my baby. We're high risk for peanut. I'm not doing this, especially until COVID's over. And we see a lot of parents unnecessarily delaying the introduction of these potentially allergenic foods. And to kind of put the guidance in other words, if you look at all of the major health bodies, their recommendation, including the American Academy of Pediatrics, is that there's no benefit to delaying the introduction of these foods. We used to think, oh, if you wait until after one to do egg whites, your baby will have a lower risk. We now know none of that is true. No benefit to waiting. So you should be doing it early and often if you're not already convinced to do so. So Dr. Sudog, I want to switch gears and talk more to, and again, I identify as a type A parent, like very nervous about introducing new foods and allergenic foods. And especially in the time of COVID, when we don't have such regular access to medical care, you don't just saunter into the pediatrician's office like you used to. And you graciously did a whole separate episode for us on, is it safe to introduce allergenic foods during COVID? And you guys, I'm going to link to that episode in the show notes for this episode, because I think it's important to listen to it because the guidance is a little bit different if you can't go to your pediatrician. And so if you go to the show notes for this episode, it's at blwpodcast.com forward slash 58. I'll link to Dr. Sunog's previous episode about COVID. should they get an EpiPen? Like my baby's not at high risk, but I'm thinking about doing peanuts. Can I call my pediatrician and get an EpiPen just in case there is an anaphylactic
1: response? So again, the short answer, no. So speaking of the high-risk kids, so it it seems like a dilemma, right? You've got a high-risk infant and you know if you feed them peanut, there's a certain chance they're gonna react. And again, they could react on that first known exposure because there's probably been unknown exposure. And what I mean by that is if this child particularly if they have eczema, if there's peanut in the household and something like 95% of households have peanut butter, there will be peanut in that infant's crib in the dust. You can almost guarantee it. So you've got a high risk infant and you know that they have a uh, high risk, less than 50%, like I said, about 20% uh, of reacting to the first time you give them a peanut food. But here's the dilemma. If they're In the 80% who won't react on that first ingestion of peanut, if you don't give them peanut through infancy, as they get older, they have a higher chance of becoming peanut allergic. So you want to give it to them. So what do you do? Well, one choice is to just give it to them. I'm not saying I recommend that, but there are experts who do because of something we spoke about earlier. And that is, what is the risk they're going to have, if they should have a reaction, a very serious or life-threatening reaction? And the answer is almost zero. Okay, so even though there's a significant chance they'll react because they're high risk, there's an almost 0% chance it's going to be life-threatening. Experts recommend, and what I agree with is, those infants should be tested first. In the age of COVID, how do you do that? Well, you have two choices. There's a skin test and a blood test. The skin test is a scratch test. You can still do that. That'll be done at the uh, allergist's office. You know, talk to your pediatrician and they'll presumably send you to the allergist. So that's one way to do it. But if you want to avoid the office because of COVID, although my guess is you're not seeing a lot of COVID patients in allergist's office, like you might in the ER, for example, you can do a blood test. Again, you would have to go to the lab and going out and about, there is certainly some risk, but I I would say, you know, that can be done safely and you get a lab test. And so if you show that uh, your infant is not allergic, even though they're high risk, you absolutely should give that infant peanut food early and often.
0: Okay. What about for parents, the ones who ask, okay, should I go and drive up in front of the emergency room and test the potentially allergenic food there with the notion being if there was a reaction, I'm right next to emergency medical care. Is that advisable for not even your high risk, just your general run-of-the-mill parents?
1: For your not high risk, there's of course some risk of allergy, of allergic reaction to peanut or any of these foods, but the risk is so low. And again, the risk of something serious happening that you can't handle by say, driving to the emergency room after it, you know, the reaction, I would not advise it. And I would say, you know, there isn't any expert who advises that. Foods, you should think of foods as being safe to introduce at home.
0: Okay, I wanna circle back, if you don't mind, one more time, could you do a run-through of the signs of an allergic reaction and maybe talk about which ones are more indicative of a reaction or not? Like, I see parents, the baby tried tomato, there's a topical rash around the face, it goes away in an hour and they think their baby's allergic to tomatoes. So could you maybe just clarify what the signs of a severe allergic reaction are versus a mild one?
1: Severe is when you see a lot of swelling and rash, particularly not around the mouth. So it becomes sort of a full-body event, along with any difficulty breathing and vomiting. That is more concerning. If it's rash alone, that's generally not that concerning. In any of these events, you should call your doctor and, you know, potentially be evaluated, certainly with the severe reaction, you should. And with the severe reaction, if you give uh, an infant food and and they start vomiting and having difficulty breathing, you go to the emergency room. In terms of really mild events, something that comes up pretty frequently is this thing called oral allergy syndrome, which is a uh, local reaction just Uh, the mouth, lips, and that reaction almost never spreads to anywhere else. And it occurs with eating certain foods, uh, lots of fruits, some vegetables that have overlapping allergenic qualities with certain environmental allergies. For example, if you're allergic to birch tree pollen, you could react when you eat an apple or cherries and other foods. That's very localized. Again, Almost never progresses to something more severe, and that's a different thing. Certainly, a parent would not be expected to differentiate between these things at home, and really just look at how you know how sick does my infant look. And again, if it's difficulty breathing, vomiting, go to the emergency room. If it's rash, call your doctor.
0: You say that, and you're a pediatrician, so you know. But I get messages all the time like, "My baby had eggplant. I know it's in the nightshade family. I know it's potentially related to this one." I was like, "At at this point, you really should be." Consulting an allergist, not a dietitian, to ask about how food allergies manifest because. Just because you're allergic to one thing in one family doesn't necessarily mean you'll be to another. And like with tree nuts, we see so many babies who are allergic to some tree nuts, but not all. Again, as with many things in child development, each baby is unique. So it is always a good idea to be assessed by the appropriate professional. First, your pediatrician, who may then refer you to an allergist who then specializes in food allergies for children. So, Dr. Sunog, thank you for all this fabulous information. For parents who wanna learn more about using food, to introduce early and often, and help prevent food allergy, where can they go to learn more?
1: You can certainly go to my book, Eat the Eight. It has a lot of information about the wrong advice we gave before, the right advice we give now, and why. And it talks about foods that infants most commonly react to and what those reactions are. And uh, you know, I try to talk to pediatricians about this and encourage them. Uh, in fact, uh, interesting, I have a new nurse practitioner at my office and just talked about it yesterday, and it was all news to her. So I'm always happy to spread this information to uh, to people who haven't heard it.
0: And I think it's important because I work very often with parents who will say and then they will literally state the exact same guidance, which was what I learned when I was studying to be a dietitian 25 years ago. And I said, Th- that information that your pediatrician just provided you is at least 25 years old, and we now know that we actually do the opposite, because we used to wait much longer to introduce these allergenic foods. And that's one thing I love about your book, Eat the Eight, is that you go through the history of the guidance and the recommendations, and how for many years, a lot of it was just based on folklore, and we passed it down Wait until, for example, one year to do egg white. But now we're looking so much more at the evidence that guides these recommendations. But it is important that pediatricians are up on that as well. So thank you for educating not only parents, but our pediatricians as well. And you guys, you can grab Dr. Sunog's book at eatthe8.com. That's E-I-G-H-T.com. He has a lot of other fabulous resources on his site, for introducing these foods early and often in order to prevent food allergy. Again, that's eatthe8.com. And I'll link up everything we talked talked about today in the show notes at blwpodcast.com forward slash 58. Dr. Sunag, thank you so much for taking the time to answer all of our parents and caregiver questions about what we do if our babies have an allergic reaction. My pleasure. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Sunog all about what to do if your baby does have an allergic reaction. I just absolutely love speaking with him. I could like stay on the phone with him forever and pick his brain because he has such a calming way of really clarifying what the data says, what the science says, what the guidance is, and then what we should be doing like there's no nonsense when it comes to Dr. Sunok. So I'll definitely have him back to do future allergy interviews. But in the meantime, if you wanna check out his materials, he's really a wealth of knowledge. Again, he's a pediatrician who specializes in the introduction of food allergies. His book is Eat the Eight. It's Preventing Food Allergies, with food and the imperfect art of medicine. If you go to eat the eight and spell it out, E-I-G-H-T.com, that's where you can find his book and a bunch of other resources, but I'll go ahead and link that up on the show notes for this episode, which is at blwpodcast.com slash five eight. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye now.